Hello, everyone. Welcome to another CRISPR Journal podcast in our little mini-series sponsored by Horizon on CRISPR Functional Genomics. Today, we're going to talk about CRISPR outcomes with machine learning, and I'm delighted to be joined by Manda Arbab from the Broad Institute. Hello, Manda. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for making a bit of time for us. I've heard you speak at conferences a few times now, so it's great to have a chance to go one-on-one and get the benefit of some of your late-breaking research um, <laughs> in this, uh, this exciting field. So before we get into CRISPR outcomes and why we want to choose one over another and what we can learn from some of the tools that you've been developing, how about a little bit of background. What was your main background and research interest before joining David Lou's lab at the Broad a few years ago? So I actually did my PhD at the Hubrecht Institute in the Netherlands, which is where I'm from. And there I was deriving induced pluripotent stem cell lines from patients that were suffering from rare motor neuron diseases Mm. that at the time, and actually largely still today, uh, the molecular basis was unknown. And what really excited me then about stem cells was that you had this unlimited source of cells that was supposed to have an unlimited potential to become any cell that you wanted if you just had the right recipe. And then induced pluripotent stem cells also held this promise to really be able to study these types of disorders since you could now take patients' genetic background and differentiate them into spinal motor neurons to study them. And that's you know not a tissue that you could otherwise normally get your hands on. So at the time, it really felt like we were in this exciting new position to study these disorders in a really new way. And so what brought you from the Netherlands to Boston? What was it about David as potential postdoc supervisor that interested you? I think that one of the main things that really did drive me to join David's lab was the base editing paper of Alexis Comores, as well as his other, you know, larger background in genome editing that I was pretty excited in at the time. I thought the base editing was just a really clever and thoughtful system. Right. And was it still your goal, or maybe it still is your goal, to get back to uh, figuring out ways to treat motor neuron disease and other neurodegenerative diseases? In a way, yeah, ideally. You know, if we can identify what the right tools would be for these purposes, and that would be a great use. That's one of the things that I've been working on is, you know, how to identify what are the right tools for these sorts of therapeutic applications. Right. So you were intrigued by his work on base editing, but I think I'm right in saying that when you joined the lab, you went back, is maybe not quite the right way of putting it, but you focused on CRISPR-Cas9 editing outcomes. Is that correct? Um, Kind of, in a way. When I actually joined his lab initially, I was trying to focus on using base editing for certain therapeutic applications, potentially. And then I quickly learned that you know, as opposed to Cas9, where you cut and you disrupt a gene basically every time, base editing is a little more complex than that because it's a tool that makes more subtle changes. And what I learned is that you really don't know what the exact genotypic outcome is going to be at a certain target site unless you've done that experiment. And that motivated me to want to learn more about these tools to see if we could do better and learn more about them. Uh, and that's what kind of prompted me to want to build this, you know, genome integrated high throughput platform that we then used for uh, the Indelphi paper and for Beehive. And then, you know, at the time, while I had this in mind for base editing, obviously it can also be used for Cas9. And through uh, Richard Sherwood, who uh, was aware of my project, I got in touch with Max Shen, who had this interest in understanding Cas9 outcomes better. And so it sort of all came together where we realized, you know, we could sort of solve both of these problems potentially by using this method and machine learning coupled with it. So you threw a lot of interesting things at us there. You mentioned in Delphi, and this is a tool that I think you introduced with a major paper with your colleagues in Nature in 2018. 
And we've all known, and we've talked about this in previous episodes of this podcast, about the desire to favor one repair outcome over another. And I think usually, particularly in the context of treating genetic diseases, you think of this as that you want to favor HDR over NHEJ because you want to make a more precise edit. Have you kind of flipped the tables, flipped the story, and you're finding ways to favor the other pathway? You know, I'd say that they're really not interchangeable in a way. Like HDR is incredibly powerful for inserting or modifying sequences in any way you want. Um, yeah. in theory. But in practice, it's kind of inefficient at best. And you know, a lot of cell types aren't amenable to HDR at all. And nucleases, on the other hand, are mainly a tool used to disrupt. We also found other uses in it that we demonstrated in the Indelphi paper. And they do this incredibly efficiently. So generally speaking, for loss of function, it's unparalleled, I'd say, as a tool. And then you know, about this difference of what you'd consider to be precise, HDR is thought of as precise, but it's really only precise when you succeed which okay. isn't most of the time. And if you don't, then you're left kind of with a mixture of, you know, indels or partial HDR outcomes, which is not really desirable. And one of the main things that we found in Delphi study was in fact that a lot of sequences that you cut with Cas9 will be repaired in an incredibly precise manner. And so you can predict exactly what is going to come out. And, you know, at some loci, you might even only get one or just a few outcomes. So if you were thinking of, you know, knocking out a gene, even for example, for therapeutic purposes, I think it would be obviously much more desirable to, you know, have a strategy that will give you only one outcome, you know, in over 90% of cases that you can validate rather than ending up with a mixture of genotypes, some of which might be undesirable. So for folks who haven't stumbled upon Indelphi, can you briefly describe what is the tool and how do researchers use it? Yeah. So in this project for Indelphi, what we did is we collected Cas9 nuclease repair outcomes, thousands of target sequences in a mm-hmm. high throughput genome integrated library assay. And then we used all that data to train a machine learning model that can predict Cas9 repair outcomes. And that's what Indelphi is. And then Max also built this really great user-friendly web tool that is freely available that people can use to predict exact genotypes that will result from Cas9 cutting at any locus, or they can use it to design precise guide RNAs for Cas9 cutting across entire genes or genomic loci that, for example, yield very precise repairs, or you you can sort it based on whatever criteria that you're really interested in. So can you give me some examples of how other researchers have been using this resource? I've heard a lot of people who have definitely like used it for various applications. Um, I think yeah. one interesting use is actually kind of the opposite of precision use, which is to purposely induce incredibly imprecise edits, for example, for lineage tracing projects where you can then use, uh. you know, a single guide that you can uh, in <clears throat> early developmental stages, for example, express with Cas9, and then, you know, all the progeny are incredibly likely to have different sets of mutations. It allows you to track things over time. Okay. Are there any other tools like this out there, or is it really a unique, one-of-a-kind resource? Uh, Well, so right after our paper came out, there were like a couple other papers that came out almost immediately after. (laughs) So I think there's definitely like a time and a place for this type of research. There are a few others, Forecast and Sprout. They are all kind of similar in a way. Okay. And you mentioned machine learning. Where does that come in? And is that part of your area of expertise or is that part of the team? That's part of the team. That's less my okay. area of expertise. Yeah. That would be <laughs> almost exclusively Max Shen, who has done a wonderful I job. I see. All that. right. Yeah. 
no, you hear a lot of hype about machine learning and right. uh, so you have to separate the hype from the reality. <laughs> so earlier on, Amanda, you briefly mentioned or dropped the name Beehive and that name may not be familiar to too many folks, but I'm going to give you the chance to describe it in more detail because you've just published a brand new paper in Cell. So congratulations on that. It sounds superficially as if this is somewhat like a companion tool to Indelphi. Is that a fair assessment? And this is to do with base editing, obviously. Correct. Yeah. So base editing BE is the thing. I would say that that's fairly accurate. You know, we did a similar, in a sense, sort of thing where we characterized in this paper, 11 base editors on thousands of target sequences. And that data then again, allowed us to build a machine learning model that we call Beehive um, that precisely predicts base editing outcomes. And, you know, in doing so, it allowed us to learn a lot more about these tools in finer granularity than ever before uh, and enabled also new uses again, similar to what Indelphi did. There are two main classes of base editor, right? There's the CBE and the ABE. Are you covering both of those? Yes, both of those are included in this, yeah. Yeah, and very naive question, but we're talking here about the on-target editing, not off-target editing. That's correct. So both of the tools actually are exclusively looking at the on-targets. For the off-targets, there have been a number of papers, including recently from our lab in Nature Biotech that have looked at sort of the off-target effects of different base editors. But this is really about, you know, how the local sequence context interacting with the DMNAs and the Cas9 species influence the type of outcome you will get at your locus. Right. So with base editing, obviously, you're trying to engineer a very precise, usually a base substitution, right? So this tool will help you determine which sites will give you the highest, most desirable efficiency. Yeah. So what it does is it will tell you the exact genotypes that will result, which can, again, be very few genotypes, or it can be a wide variety of different genotypes of different combinations of the nucleotides at the on-target site that get edited. And what this did for us is, among other things, it allowed us to identify a lot of human disease targets that we then demonstrated could efficiently be edited with very high precision of just the target nucleotide, even though they had bicenter nucleotides surrounding them in the editing window. And so previously, you wouldn't have been able to appreciate, you know, a priori that these would be good candidate sites for high precision correction. But we can tell you precisely using which guide and which editor uh, you can achieve that. Okay. So, of course, one of the big new technologies developed in the lab while you've been there is prime editing. Is that the next target for you? It seems as if everything's heading in that direction. Uh, Quite possibly. We'll have to see if we can get it to work in a similar system. Okay. All right. We'll we'll watch this. uh, (laughs) But that brings me to another final couple of questions. I think you said you've been in the lab three years. It must have been an exhilarating three years to see so much amazing science in genome editing. I wonder if you could just maybe describe what that's been like for somebody who has been interested in treating genetic diseases. I mean, you and the rest of the group and many others are really riding. This must be an incredibly exciting time to be in research. It absolutely is. I feel like every month or two, something completely game-changing comes out. um, And it's incredibly exciting to feel like you're right in the thick of it and seeing all these developments happen around you and tools that you could only dream of, making edits at efficiencies, you know, that you could only dream of before are now just becoming a reality. And it's, it's really wonderful. And I also feel incredibly lucky being embedded in David's lab where, you know, even in this one lab, a lot of this work is actually happening. And it's very exciting to get first look and first access to these new tools that are coming out. Yeah. Have you actually been able to get back into the lab? Most people have been shut down (laughs) in the last few months. So that's good for intellectually thinking about the next round of experiments. But uh, so how are things uh, shaping up for you? 
Well, so our lab has kind of started to reopen actually as of this week. We've been closed okay. since mid-March and there were certainly like offsite things that I yeah. was able to continue with, but you know, I'm an experimentalist. So for a large yeah. part, some of this was on pause, which is a strange thing to adapt to. It's given me more opportunity to sort of think about, you know, maybe my next steps and potentially what is it that I would like to do searching for faculty positions and, you know, what yeah. are topics of research that I'd like to pursue in the future? Yeah. Well, don't leave us hanging. So what do you, what are you thinking <laughs> about? I have a few ideas, um, both okay. potentially like application. I've now built these tools that I myself yeah. was you know, eager to use, like if we could really yeah. predict what would be good disease targets to pursue. So, you know, that would be one direction that I'm interested in. I've also, yeah. you know, really enjoyed these sort of high throughput methods combined with strong machine learning collaborations that allow us to really learn things in a very different way than normal um, molecular biology experiments. I would also maybe like to get more into um, thinking maybe functional genomics, if I can combine sort of the knowledge that I've gained from these previous projects and go in that direction. But I need to think about it a little more to know exactly what I want to do. Excellent. Well, thanks for bringing us up to speed on Beehive, which has just been published in Cell. And presumably people can find that online. I don't know if you have a snappy URL you can give us. Yes, I do. It's in the paper. It's oh, I, something oh, like beehive.design. Probably... <laughs> I don't know the exact link off the top of my head. Okay. Right. Um, well, we'll, I'm sure we'll... if you Google that, I think it'll pop out. Oh, it'll probably appear on your lab webpage or something. Yes, like that, precisely. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that you're finally getting back in the lab and wish you every success on the faculty job hunt. I'm sure it will be fascinating to see where you end up and we wish you and the rest of the lab every success going forward. That's Manda Arbab, who's been uh, talking to us about CRISPR outcomes and some of the very cool tools that she's been building in David Liu's lab over the last few years. And that closes for now another episode in our Horizon podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Manda for her time. And thanks to you for listening. So for everyone at the CRISPR Journal, I'm Kevin Davis. Join us on another episode very soon. See you later.